Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guests today are Abigail Favalli and Elizabeth Block. Dr. Abigail Favalli is a professor at the University of Notre Dame. She speaks regularly on topics related to women and gender from a Catholic perspective. Her latest book is The Genesis of Gender, a Christian Theory. Dr. Elizabeth Sweeney Block is an associate professor of Christian ethics at St. Louis University. She is writing a book on conscience, moral agency, and social sin. Elizabeth and Abigail co-authored two articles in America Magazine. How Should Catholics Think About Gender Identity and Transgender Persons? And What Does God Reveal in Transgender Bodies? A Conversation on Catholic Teaching and Gender. These articles did really well at America, and they spurred lots of great conversation. So I wanted to follow up with these two Catholic scholars and continue the conversation. They helped define what they mean by sex and gender. We see that Elizabeth says that sex is a factor in gender, but not the defining factor, and that gender is best discovered when a person reveals it as they have gone through and done the work and the interior work of understanding themselves. Abigail also agrees that sex alone is not a definer of gender, that From a Catholic perspective, it's sex and more than that. However, Abigail would say that sex is the springboard from gender. You cannot disregard it. It does have a defining feature in gender. What I appreciated with both Abigail and Elizabeth is modeling the conversation where there is disagreement. We're modeling a conversation where they are trying to get to the point so we can figure out how does a human person flourish in these conditions in light of one's understanding of themselves, their lived experience, also our theology, our understanding of the human person as Catholics. How do we have these conversations? How do we come to know what is true? I really hope you enjoy the conversation and that you give Elizabeth and Abigail a fair listen and also engage with the articles that they have written for America. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And guess what? That is okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, 
please support it by clicking the follow button on your favorite podcast listening app and by getting a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Abigail Favalli and Elizabeth Block is up next. Elizabeth and Abigail, welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, or should I say to Abigail, welcome back. (laughs) Thanks. And Elizabeth, it's so nice to meet you and have you on the podcast to have this very important discussion during Women's History Month, as a matter of fact. And for our listeners, I'm just going to ask that you listen with open minds and open hearts and perhaps even say a prayer inviting God to show the light of the truth to you as you listen to these wonderful women discuss this most important issue that we're really grappling with, it seems, right now. So maybe I should start with you, Elizabeth. Could you help us understand how you see gender as they talk about it now, particularly through the lens of the faith? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Gloria. I'm so happy to be here, and I just appreciate the work you do to uplift marginalized voices on your podcast. I understand gender in very complicated ways, and I think that that's what I'm pushing for in the America conversation that Abigail and I had is just to really sort of complicate our understanding of gender a bit. So I absolutely think there are at least two genders, but I also think that we need to pay attention to those who don't feel like they fit into one neat category or another and to hear their experiences. So I understand there to be some social construction of gender alongside the fact that, sure, there's something natural and innate about humans. I think the question I have constantly and I keep coming back to is, can we really always, as flawed, fallible humans, be sure we understand everything there is to know about the human, right? I think we're constantly learning and so that we need to be open to new information, new science, new experiences that might teach us something different about gender. So let me let me have you back up and explain when you say social construction. What does that mean? Yeah, it means that there are a lot of things, a lot of categories, a lot of concepts that we use in our lives and in our everyday language that are not necessarily innate or given or handed to us. Time is a social construct. Money is a social construct. It doesn't mean that these things aren't real. I have a colleague who said once, you know, he was trying to teach social construction to students and said, well, we'll tell them to give you all their money if, you know, if money's not real. It's real, right? But it's sort of a concept we've invented to help us get through life. There are a lot of categories like that that we use because it helps us. We humans sort of like to categorize things and we like to be able to divide and sort of place people into neat boxes and categories. So I think there is an element of that to gender. I don't think it's clear that being a woman is this and always this, or being a man is this and always this, and that it comes with these absolutely certain characteristics that are always joined with the idea of being a man or being a woman. I think some of that comes from our culture and our society and ideas we have created about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Well, let me ask this. Does gender have any basis in the biological reality of our bodies? So I understand our sex to be more biological than our gender. I understand sex to be related to, but not solely defined by genitalia, chromosomes, hormones, 
primary and secondary sex characteristics. There are many things that go into understanding the sex of a person. Gender, I understand to refer both to a person's gender identity, one's sense of being a man or a woman, or, or neither of those things, and also to refer to a person's gender role or gender expression, right? They're the outward manifestation of their identity that's typically expressed in societal norms associated with masculinity and femininity. Okay. So there is a physical and then there are the ideas, innate ideas about one's interior self, which cannot be observed by the physical. Is that right? Correct. Yes. I do not think that the physical entirely dictates one's gender. I mean, I think that's probably the most reliable way to get that information is from an individual. But certainly there are lots of people who fit into the traditional categories of gender that we've come to know, male and female, and there are ways of identifying that. I wouldn't like to just rely on those. I mean, I can remember when my kids were little and being confused by a boy in their class who had long hair, right? And I didn't want them to think that long hair necessarily meant girl, right? Or short hair meant boy, right? Mm -hmm. Boys can look all sorts of ways and girls can look all sorts of ways. So I, I think on the one hand, it's a little bit dangerous to rely only on physical characteristics. But I also think they're, you know, people are pretty open and willing to talk about their identity. And there can sometimes be physical clues. I just wouldn't want to say those are necessary markers of gender. So what are the necessary markers of gender if it's not the physical? How would we know or can we know? I mean, I think the clearest way to know is to ask a person, right? This is why we're now in a, an age where people share their pronouns and ask to be called a certain name, right? And I say, I identify as this, I identify as that, I identify as a woman. So I think that's the clearest way to know. Can that change though? Am I, if I say, because if it's really more my inner perception of myself is more indicative does that also mean it's once I discover it, that it's immutable? I don't think so. I mean, I, I've talked about this person before, but there's a theologian, Craig Ford, who talks about gender as a journey that all of us are on, whether we're cisgender or transgender, that we have to sort of identify and work at developing our gender, feeling comfortable in our gender. And so I think that it is not immutable, that it might change. I think the goal is to sort of find your gender and be comfortable in it and not be a chameleon. So, well, let me ask this, because some people may not be familiar with the term cisgender. Mm. Can you explain what that is? Right. So that's a person who's assigned gender at birth matches the gender that they identify as. And there are going to be people that don't know what assigned at birth means. Can you explain that? So right when you're born and the doctor says, this is a girl or this is a boy, and then the person grows up and feels, yes, that was the right call to make. I am, in fact, a girl or I am, in fact, a boy. And for our listeners, this means it's not what a person will say about themselves is not based on their biology at all, whether they are chromosomally male or female is not relevant in this journey to self-discovery. It's not. Well, I don't know that I'd want to say it's irrelevant. I think that those biological characteristics are a factor, but it's do, do these line up? Do, are these right? Do I feel right in the body that I'm in or do I not? And I, I wanted to say at the outset, by the way, that I want to be really careful 
when I'm talking about the experiences of transgender people because I am cisgender. I identify as a woman. I always have. So I just want to be really cautious and know that I can only speak from my own knowledge and my own experience and can't speak on behalf of transgender persons. Okay, I hear that. But I guess to me, as I'm listening, if the physical doesn't matter, like you cannot definitively know based on the physical and you must always ask To me, the physical then does not matter, cannot matter, cannot be of any real consequence for me to know anything about anybody else because I have to rely on that person to reveal to me how they have interiorly decided where they fall. Am I understanding this wrong or... Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'd want to say that the body is unimportant, right? The body is very important. It's both Mm -hmm. very important and maybe not as important as we want to make it out to be. So the fact that I have a uterus is an important thing. I need the medical care that comes along with that. I need the support if I bear children and I have that. I need the support that goes along with all the sort of medical ramifications there, right? So the things about my body are important and do matter. They just don't define me. That I have a uterus doesn't mean that I have to do something specific with it. So I think the body is important. It's this negotiation between the body that I have and the feeling that I'm something different. So Elizabeth, I'm going to come back to you because I'm still working out in my mind, you know, why it should or shouldn't matter about certain physical characteristics And the fact that some of us do have uteruses and vaginas perhaps move through the world differently and should that count for something. But let me pivot to Abigail and ask her the same question. What does gender mean to you? How do you define it? Make sense of it? I like that you start with this question because I think definitions often get lost in this conversation. So I think there's a lot of confusion around the term sex and gender. I think they're often conflated for different purposes. So I'll start with saying what my view, which is informed by a Catholic anthropology, is about what gender is. So I would say that gender is a personal category in the sense that it refers to an entire person. Now, in a Catholic understanding, a human person is a unity of body and soul. So gender then, or say in my case, womanhood, being a woman, womanness, my gender is woman. It includes the fact that I'm female, right? It includes biology, but it's not just biological because human beings are not just creatures of matter, but we're also creatures of spirit. So gender also includes a spiritual level as well as a psychological level. And then, of course, because we're social beings, there is a sense in which gender is also, you know, one sex lived out in the world in the context of a community. So I would say that gender points to the whole person. So it's grounded in biological sex, but it can't be just reduced to biological sex. So do you think there's such a thing as a feminine and masculine soul? Oh, this is a great question. I've actually been thinking through this. I don't have a well-formed opinion on this. There's some debates so I'm a big fan of Edith Stein, who's a philosopher. and Carmelite. Yeah, I know, right? St. <laughs> Teresa Benedict of the Cross, in case anybody listening doesn't know who Edith Stein is. Yes. So she would argue, I mean, she would lean more toward the yes on this. And I think it's because she emphasizes that there's such a profound unity between the body and the soul, that it is the sex of the body does kind of shape or imprint our spiritual reality in some way as well. 
I don't know. As far as like getting into the like super nitty gritty metaphysical weeds about Aristotelian categories, I'm less interested in that. I think it's an interesting conversation. But again, I would say that any attempt to reduce, I guess, the holistic category of woman to either just the body or to just separate it from the body entirely and attribute it just to psychology or just to this kind of sense of a gendered soul. I think either of those depart from the understanding of the human person as an integral whole of body and soul. So can I know if a person is male or female without them telling me their interior understanding of themselves? Yes. So male and female, those are terms that are not just unique to human beings, right? So they refer to basically the production or the reproductive niche of sexually reproducing species. So male and female is a term that connects to biological sex. And I think in this conversation and in the general conversation around biological sex in our culture, too often biological sex is talked about as if it's just these parts, you know, like a uterus or a vagina or chromosomes. But actually what sex is, is a body map. It's the organization of the body as a whole according to a particular procreative potential, a reproductive niche. So it's the toward the potential to produce small gametes, as in the case of male, or large gametes in the case of female. And when we're talking about mammals, for females, that includes the potentiality to gestate, and males, the potentiality to inseminate, right? That's what maleness and femaleness is. So it exists irrespective of one's subjective or psychological convictions about sex because it's an objective and stable category that exists among all sexually reproducing species. So I'm trying to, of course, understand how do we come to know the truth of a person? Is this something that is knowable without the person themselves revealing it to us? And it seems like there's a bit of disagreement (laughs) on that. And so that, Elizabeth, maybe help us sort of understand how to how to navigate through that when for most of our lives, I think the normal thing has been, and I say the word normal, meaning that has been the predominant, I'm not trying to assign any values to it, but that has been, especially as a child, you, oh, that's a tree. Tree has these characteristics. Oh, that's a table. A table has these characteristics. Same thing about male, female, boy, girl, man, woman. And they're just particular things that we know, at least we believe we know, just by looking without asking. And so it's a whole different way, I think, to interpret our physical world to now have to ask each individual person we encounter what they are, who they are, right? When we already had like categories about how we name things. And so I imagine people struggle with that. How could you help them not struggle, Elizabeth? Yeah. I mean, first, I just want to say there's a lot of agreement that Abigail and I actually have, one of which is her understanding that gender can't be reduced to the biological, right? That there might be some connection there, but the one can't be reduced to the other. I think it's always dangerous and good practice not to categorize people based on appearance. So I don't think it's a big stretch for us just to now be in a place where we say these are our pronouns. For me, it's in my email signature. This is how I identify. And surely a large number of people fit into the categories that we've always used for gender. So it's just making space for those who don't 
and giving them the room to let us know, I don't fit into this category. Please call me this. Please identify me as this. So I don't know that it's a upending of every category we've ever known or a radical change in the way we do things, because I think it's always been a good idea not to define someone by appearance or physical characteristics. We'll be right back. So what does that mean in terms of because because we have, in a real sense, at least according to sex, had different spaces for people. And, and I look, I acknowledge that males <laughs> have been a threat to females. So how do we then move through the world with that understanding that categorization no longer matters? Does the threat go away? How do we do this? There are still men and still women. I think those categories still hold. And so absolutely, we can still talk about, you know, men being a threat to women in certain ways, right? And sexism and all of those things. That all still matters. And it's incredibly important. Accepting that not everyone fits into those two categories doesn't mean those two categories don't exist or aren't real. It's just a question of, how can we recognize that it's not as simple as just two categories? Can we make space for those who don't feel like they fit into one or the other of these categories or who are in the wrong category? And again, I don't think that means we have to do away with these categories. Categories are helpful. This is how we, as you say, we move through life. Those categories still exist. They do. It's just as I say, making space for others. How can we make space? And and maybe this is something that, Abigail, you can address. How can we make space for people who believe they don't fit in either category or that the category they're in is the wrong one when one of the categories, female, I think bears most of the risk from the other category, male. And we have organized supposedly society in a way with that reality in mind So how do we get to a place where we can move through and understand perhaps they're going to be what we would consider in terms of sex, males who in terms of gender see themselves as women? So how do we get to a place? Can we get to a place? And how do we as Catholics think about this? Yeah, I think that's a complicated question. I think it's important to think in terms of biological sex when we're talking about this level, because... For example, the like gender identity, it doesn't make sense to distinguish sports leagues based on psychological conviction of whether one is male or female, right? So the sex segregation of sports has everything to do with the body and sexual dimorphism between male and females. So I think there are certain spheres in society where sex is still very relevant. And in those spheres, I think that the categorization should be based on sex. For example, in prisons, Right? I think it's very important that you have males and females separated in prisons. Why? Why? Because what you talked about, right? That physically speaking, when we're talking about bodily realities, females are more vulnerable to sexual exploitation than males. And even though it's not most males who are dangerous, it's a minority of males who, who are violent towards other women or towards females, But that violence and the threat there is based on physical differences. And so those are what matters, right? It's not people with a certain psychological conviction that are a threat to women. 
right? Now, when it comes to things like restrooms, you know, I'm just a big fan of the locking single-use facility. I think it's great for anyone to be able to, you know, regardless of gender identity, use it. Families can use it. Mm. But also, I think it's important that we don't have this sudden amnesia about the fact that females are more vulnerable to exploitation. And I will say, too, I just want to make clear that the the argument I'm making here is not that trans-identified people are more predatory. What I'm saying is that if we The erosion of sex-segregated spaces creates a system that can be manipulated by bad actors, many of whom might not even identify as trans or would only do it in order to get access to more vulnerable people. So that's the argument. The argument is that this makes a gameable system that endangers women and children. So Elizabeth, then how do we work this? I appreciate Abigail's suggestion that we have to accommodate a wide range of comfort, right? So I, I'm on board with the single-use restrooms and letting families navigate those however is best for them. I think that the question of sports is more complicated. The question of single-sex education is more complicated. And I don't have a great answer for it yet. It's something I'm thinking through because I understand the challenges for athletes when someone with a different build and a different kind of body suddenly comes in and is allowed to participate in a sport, I can understand why that's difficult for athletes. The flip side of that is how difficult it is for somebody to be forced into a team or a position or a side that isn't who they are and the kind of trauma and damage that can do to them as well. So there's a lot of relational aspects that need to be considered in terms of caring for the whole person, caring for all people, and figuring out how we can do that. You know, there are single-sex education institutions, you know, all women's high schools that are dealing with these sorts of questions. When there's a transgender student, can they still be here? How do we deal with this? And I think priority number one has to be support, community, and relationships. And so that the answer might look different in different places. I guess the question I also have here, maybe both of you can think about this. How do we then serve the weakest among us? How do we then serve the most vulnerable among us in this construct, especially when in a lot of cases, the most vulnerable are girls and women? So how do we still serve women and girls in a way to keep them safe? And I also think about How do we tell women and girls, trust your gut, except on this? Yeah, I just, I'm not seeing how being open to people embracing their gender identity poses a threat to women and girls, right? We still, of course, need to protect women and girls from all kinds of threats in the world. But I don't think that welcoming people who have done a serious examination of conscience and are well-formed and have made the decision that they're in the wrong body, I'm supposed to be a woman, or I don't fit into these categories, I'm non-binary, right? There's a number of possibilities. I don't think that being welcoming of those people poses a threat. We still have to work for women's rights. We still have to make sure that women have a voice. We still have to make sure that women are protected. But I, the two don't 
connect for me. I don't think that we're endangering women or children or vulnerable populations when we expand our understanding of gender. Are there limits to welcome? I think that's where people often say, what do you mean by welcome? Abigail, how can we be welcoming in these spaces if we do have this specific sex segregation? Is it possible? Is that unwelcoming? Is that, what do we do? Yeah, I think... Um, I mean, I, I kind of I think there are some practical accommodations that can be made, but I do think that there are times when it's important to hold a sex-based line. And I think maybe part of the problem in this conversation is that this isn't really just about, you know, individuals. Gender identity theory is a framework that's really being imposed in so many institutional levels in our society. And the claims that are being made are not exceptional, but they're new norms that are being imposed about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man. And emphatically, what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man, those categories are being displaced from sex and they're being attributed to gender identity, which is the kind of psychological conviction. And that's really an inversion of what we know about human nature, right? So gender identity theory tries to take what is stable and immutable by nature, biological sex, and posit it as mutable, as changeable, while taking what is actually mutable by nature, our psychology, neuroplasticity, and then positing that as immutable. So we're really seeing this kind of neglect of the reality of biological sex. The conversation used to be, okay, how do we accommodate exceptions to the norms? But that's not what the conversation's about anymore. The conversation is about establishing new norms that no longer acknowledge the reality of sex and the very real impact that it has in our lives. And I think that's a big problem. And I don't actually, I don't think it's just a big problem for women and girls, although I really appreciate the points you're making. I really think this whole framework is at odds with human flourishing for both males and females. Hmm. And I'm very concerned. This is something we haven't actually, we've been kind of maybe dancing around in our conversation, but I'm very concerned about the fact that gender identity theory is connected to a particular pathway of medicalization, right? I think it's very hard for me to see how someone could say that gender identity theory and the accompanying medicalization that's linked with it is not a rejection of the truth and integrity of the body. And I see there being profound bioethical concerns here that need to be faced. So let me make sure I'm understanding what you mean by medicalization. Are you talking about taking cross-sex hormones? Are you talking about the surgeries to change the physical appearance? Is that what you mean by medicalization? Yes. So I'm referring to what's generally called gender-affirming care. So that can be kind of a range of different procedures, but it often includes for children and adolescents, puberty blockers followed by cross-sex hormones. For adults, it would be cross-sex hormones and then often followed by surgeries. But what's important to realize is that these surgeries and cross-sex hormones, the desired effect is a cosmetic effect. And then the theory is that that cosmetic effect will lead to a sense of well-being and resolve a sense of gender dysphoria or distress with one's sex. But what I guess what I want to highlight there is that there's not an objective physiological condition that is being treated by these medical interventions. 
Instead, you have a healthy, functioning, normally sexed, oftentimes fertile body that's being disrupted and sterilized. And I think that's at odds with human flourishing. Well, okay. I hear that. But Elizabeth, let me ask you this. Why would anybody do a gender conforming surgery if what really matters is the interior understanding of the self? That to me seems to go against helping us move away from the physical mattering. But I think, again, I don't want to entirely move away from the physical mattering. And I don't think gender theorists want to do that either. And I heard Abigail talking about sort of the taking a perfectly healthy, functioning, fertile body and changing it because of someone's psychology. But again, that seems to sort of reassert this kind of false dichotomy between body and mind, psychology, soul, right? Where like healthy body, but something's going on with the person's psychology. Well, no, I think the two are more bound together than that, right? It's not a healthy functioning body if this person is in distress in this body, if this body is causing pain to this person. Not every case is one where someone elects gender affirming surgery either. Some people make social changes to their gender with a different name and different dress and don't opt for surgery. So to only focus on the medicalization, I think, is to miss, you know, sort of that there are other things going on. But also, I think it does highlight, in fact, that there is a relationship between body and gender, a very complicated, not straightforward one. And so for some people, that's the necessary step. I don't think it's a step that people rush into willy-nilly, right? Part of Abigail and I, what we were asked to do when we had a conversation in America Magazine was to respond to this Congregation for Catholic Education's document from 2019, male and female. He created them. And I think one of the mistakes, there's a, I find there to be a number of mistakes in that document, but one of the big ones is this emphasis on free self-determination as though gender dysphoria, trans people are the result of a confused concept of freedom, right? Or what the document calls momentary desires provoked by emotional impulses and the will of the individual. I mean, that's just not a fair assessment of what's going on in the minds and hearts and bodies of trans people. I think that they, in many cases, feel that this move is bringing them closer to God, who they're really meant to be. And so I think that's all really important to consider. Abigail was also talking about gender theory. And I understand gender theory to be broadly conceived as the study of gender, right? The study of gender roles, the exploration of the origins of gender, whether it's socially constructed or natural or some combination thereof. I think it prompts us to ask questions about our bodies and about gender, to question whether our understanding of gender is natural, you know, or not. I don't think it's trying to eliminate all gender differences. That's another claim that I think the Congregation for Catholic Education document makes that isn't really clear. Gender theory is not trying to eliminate difference. It's asking, questioning, suggesting that gender may not be as stable a category of analysis as we've come to think of it as. And my main concern is just to prevent us from regulating identities for others, putting them into categories without their input. Okay. So how when Abigail mentioned something about these new norms impacting us, let me back up and ask you, Elizabeth, 
why does this subject matter to you? And how do you see these new norms impacting us? How are we going to move through the world with these norms? How do we do this? This matters because it's a question of human flourishing. How can we help all human beings to flourish? How can we give them the space and the tools and the, you know, the material items they need to flourish, right? So this is all a question of human flourishing for me. And nothing short of that is at stake here. So I think it's really important that we give people the space to discern this for themselves. I'm a Catholic moral theologian who thinks that norms change and shift, right? The fundamentals of the Catholic faith remain, but we are human, we are flawed, we are fallible. And so, you know, I'd be out of a job as a theologian if it weren't the case that we are always searching. We're always trying to get at the truth. And I want to hear and rely on the experiences of people who are non-binary, transgender, to inform us on that journey. Can I say something on the human flourishing point? Of course. So I think that every every significant human temptation that an individual or a society faces will present itself as conducive to human flourishing, right? So the question I have is then what are the criteria for discerning whether a particular movement or a particular idea is a temptation to something destructive or a genuine development conducive to human flourishing, right? Like, how do we test those claims to know what's good and true? So to use an example, not gender, like what about, say, prosperity gospel, right? Like I grew up evangelical Protestantism. There's a prosperity gospel is very alive in that world. And I'm sure that I could speak to people who within that movement who could talk about the benefits, the fulfillment, the happiness, the joy, the profound experience they've had with God, that this has been conducive to their human flourishing. And I'm sure they could provide evidence from scripture to support this. So then what would be the criteria to kind of judge, I guess, whether the prosperity gospel is one, an authentic interpretation of the gospel and is indeed truly conducive to human flourishing, right? So I think that is really important question to have because appealing just to experience well, it's a mixed bag, right? Like, who do we listen to? Like, coming back to the gender conversation, right? What voices do we privilege? What experiences do we amplify? Like, I was just listening to an interview with a trans woman named Lois. She is an indigenous Canadian trans woman, and she has applied for euthanasia through medical assistance and dying program in Canada because transition has made her life unlivable. So should we listen to her experience, even though it doesn't fit the dominant narrative? Should we listen to the experiences of detransitioners who are increasingly coming out and telling their stories in the thousands? You know, just like this guy named Richie who takes a full 10 minutes to empty his bladder and experiences constant pain and discomfort due to his transition, right? Does his experience matter? Because the truth is, like in my research, in my years looking into this issue, like I've spoken with trans people for whom transition has been a positive experience. I've spoken with trans people for whom it's really been kind of a mixed bag. And I've talked with people for whom it's been life destroying. And what tends to happen if we don't have a criteria for judging what is good and what is true then what happens is this lived experience becomes subject or vulnerable to manipulation by power, right? So lived experience has to be normed through human reason and divine revelation. So the experiences that confirm the dominant narrative are the ones that are then deemed authoritative. The loudest voice wins. And I think we're really seeing this on a broader scale in terms of how the conversation around gender is being handled, 
right? At the very least, it seems like a compassionate and reasonable person would respond to experiences like that of Lois or like that of detransitioners, like, wow, maybe there's a way that we could look at the evidence and figure out who might be helped by transition, who might be harmed. But no, you're not supposed to even question the dominant narrative. And you're not supposed to listen to voices that don't affirm that narrative. And so that means that negative transition experiences get suppressed. And so this is one of my beefs with this cultural framework of gender identity theory and the medicalization, because it leads to harm, but then actively tries to hide the reality of that harm, because it is a threat to the framework itself. But I really think we need to cultivate a set of sympathies that run the, the gamut of those experiences that present clashing visions of what is good and what is true. And again, what is the criteria from which we can discern what is an authentic or I guess a genuine means to human flourishing and a genuine interpretation or manifestation living out of the gospel? And what is actually more a narrative that leads away from human flourishing and is actually a corruption of the truth? So a couple of things. This is really important. I think this is the work that ethicists have to be doing. I think there needs to be a distinction. There's this distinction for me in the example that Abigail gave between, say, the prosperity gospel movement and gender theory and transgender and non-binary persons, which is that the prosperity gospel movement is this movement in which people are kind of hoarding wealth, right? And that this is a sign of their closeness to God and prosperity, right? This is not a justice movement. We know that our wealth is not supposed to be hoarded, that, you know, the richer you are, the closer you are not to God. So the prosperity gospel has an impact on many, many people. I guess what I'm always trying to understand is what is the impact of listening to someone's experience, helping them discern, you know, what is right for them and their body and allowing them to move forward with that after a lot of careful thoughts, conversations with doctors, conversations with psychologists and psychiatrists, right? Going through a real process and discerning for themselves, what is the right thing for me and my body? That to me strikes me as very different from this prosperity gospel movement. And certainly, absolutely, in answer to your question, we need to be listening to marginalized voices on all sides of this conversation. So for people for whom transition was, you know, a disaster and it has led to complications and suffering in their life, those voices need to be heard. But they don't overrule the voices who say, this has been amazing for me. This is the thing I needed. It saved my life, right? Both of those voices need a place in this conversation. And the question of discernment, again, I'm wondering, like, what are the boundaries for discerning something like this? Like, what does that look like? Like, according to what, again, like, what boundaries does discernment happen? You know, because there are very real tensions between what Catholic teaching says about the human person and what gender identity theory says about the human person. So when you, I think, aptly responded to the prosperity gospel, you know, you you were like really quickly were like, nope, that's not Christian justice. That is clearly at odds, right? But then when it comes to gender, I'm just wondering, do you not see those tensions? Or why don't those tensions seem as obvious to you? Why doesn't the kind of norm about Catholic anthropology matter here while the norm about Catholic teaching on poverty does matter? Mm -hmm. 
No, that's a great question. And really, it boils down to my concern that Catholicism has overemphasized, placed too much importance on sex and the body as a kind of litmus test for being Catholic. So why is sex, why is gender, why is the body more important than how we treat each other, how we make sure that people have their basic needs met, you know, that we make sure people have medical care, right? So this sort of prioritization of body and sex seems like a misplaced priority to me. Are those things important? Yes. Are they, you know, what make or break us as Catholics? I don't think so. Okay. So let me wrap with a couple of observations. For me, I think the difficulty will be thinking of theology to body, that the body reveals something about us and that it does have a fundamental role. And then there's the truth of how to treat the body, right? And so there are certain things that we might say, oh, women need these things for liberation, for our freedom, for our equality. And the church might say, no, actually that isn't something that'll be liberating and freeing good, beautiful, and true because it does violence to the woman's body and to the child within it, talking about abortion as an example. So there are some things, and, and there are people that will say, well, abortion is healthcare and it's a proper care of women, but refracted through the faith, we reject those things for specific reasons. And I think the difficulty that we will have is trying to say, how is it that we treat the body that is beautiful, good, and true that doesn't harm its natural end, like the natural order of things? I think that's where people are going to struggle. And then secondly, I think also the struggle is if we are talking about human flourishing and marginalization of peoples and things like that, the hard sell, at least from what I'm hearing, is that women need to sacrifice some level of their understanding of themselves or their well-being and safety in order to accommodate certain men that identify with them. To me, that's a hard sell. But let me ask this final question. Elizabeth, is there something that you've learned from Abigail through these conversations and have these conversations impacted your own thinking? And then Abigail, I'll ask the same of you. Where do you feel you've learned the most from Elizabeth? Have these conversations with her or in general impacted your own thinking? Ooh, this is a good question. I can start. I think it's just reiterated for me the importance of people who hold different positions coming together and being able to have a respectful conversation where they can find points in common. I hope that we've modeled that for people. I really enjoyed the back and forth conversation, both in in the magazine and today on this podcast. And I think it shows people you can really listen and hear what someone else is saying and that that's important. So, you know, we have things in common. We think it's important to listen to people's experiences, to listen to science, to oppose stereotypes about how women and men should behave. I mean, I think those are all things we share. And so from that, we can, we have a starting point where we can go from here. Yeah, I completely agree with everything that was just said. And this has been a really refreshing process for me, I think, because I think a lot of people are just confused about how do we even talk about this issue, Mm -hmm. right? And this issue, like so many issues in America, is just caught up in this really toxic polarization where immediately it's this us versus them. You like double down with your tribe and then there's no possibility of dialogue or meaningful charitable disagreement. 
right? So I really commend America for saying, no, we're actually going to talk about this and we're going to have people with different views discuss this. I think more specifically, this has been fruitful because it's prompted me to to begin to clarify my own thinking about the role of experience in theology, right? So, because I agree that experience is important. I I have a very strong Ignatian streak. I'm constantly trying to discern my own experience and bring it to the light of Christ. So experience is important, but it also is limited. It's also fallen. It needs to be illuminated. And so I think this has helped, this process has helped me clarify my thinking about experience. Wow, this has been a a wonderful conversation. First of all, let me thank both of you for modeling how we need to have these conversations too often. I think there has been so much negativity and so much shouting down of the other, so much trying to dominate instead of conversate. (laughs) I'm not saying we've come to any definitives, but I definitely say we've come to explore here in a way that I rarely hear in a broader discourse on the topic. So thank you both for being great models of dialogue for us on this. Thank you. Thanks for giving us the chance to actually talk in person. That's That's been nice. <laughs> ah, this really gasses me up to see women doing it. You know what I'm saying? And I think this is just so great that we're having this conversation during Women's History Month and may all our sisters out there be encouraged by it. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and joining with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. Oh, by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and is engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.